save the podcast, not destroy it. We just reviewed four Frank and Elada movies. That much filth could ruin this podcast. We need to review a classic movie. A movie that is dignified, and which in turn would restore our dignity. A bonus episode on Jack Clayton's The Innocents. A movie such as that could save the podcast. Why am I whispering? Also, we have a book now. The first Scary Stuff Anthology is on sale at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indiebound, wherever. Get your books. Buy it now. Welcome to this bonus episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Leamy. How y'all doing tonight? And our co-host, Jacob Jones-Goldstein. Hello. All right. We are doing our little bonus episode this month on the most natural extension from Frank Hennenlotter that you can get, which would be <laughs> Jack Clayton's The Innocence from 1961. <laughs> <laughs> See, I know where you're coming from, which is why it does actually work, but it's still just hearing those words. <laughs> well, you got to figure, you know, Hen and Lauder was probably a really big Deborah Carr fan. We like, oh, yeah, Deborah Carr. Love her. Love Deborah Carr. We tried to get her for Dr. Cutter and Basket Case, but the scheduling just didn't work. <laughs> love her. Love Deborah Carr. You know my favorite movie? No, no. It's, it's not It's not Separate Tables. Fuck that movie. It's not Kane. I fuck that movie. You know what my favorite Deborah Carr movie is? The Gypsy Moss, 1968, John Frankenheimer. She's topless for three seconds in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Love that movie. God bless you, Frank. So we're doing this following our Frank Hennenlotter spotlight for a couple reasons. Uh, one is we went heavy on the schlock, obviously, for Frank Hennenlotter. So it's like, all right, let's do something that's a little more austere, a little more on the classic side for a change of pace. Specifically, let's do a Criterion movie or a movie that's part of the Criterion collection. Because, as Frank Hennenlotter said in the Rewind This documentary, Criterion, go fuck yourselves. I talked about how he hates their covers. So that's one reason. And then but another reason is, appropriately enough, coming up soon is Haunting of Bly Manor. Yay! So we're actually recording this episode the weekend before that's going to go live. So by the time this episode goes up, hopefully everyone listening to this will have seen Bly Manor. But for us, it's going to be a little bit of a pregame. And as you should all know, you should definitely know, Bly Manor is brought to you by Mike Flanagan. He's our favorite human. <laughs> he hates hands. Yeah, this was an interesting choice to follow up Henenlotter. It was a little bit like uh, Whiplash. Whiplash, yeah. That's where you, you snap your head back in a car after somebody rams into you or something. It was definitely a significant tonal change. Which I will admit I really enjoyed, but it took me a second to kind of settle into it <laughs> after watching Bad Biology and Frankenhooker. <laughs> you know, you, you put on the innocence and you get this opening with Isla Cameron singing, oh, Willow Wally. And it's just like, wh where am I? What what happened? <laughs> Why is nobody yelling yet? I do want to say up front that uh, there was definitely a, a new experience for me. And I'd never seen this, nor had I read the original Turning to the Screw that it's based off of. But I will say this. I had a little bit of the ending kind of explained to me at one point. And I would definitely say that I think I would have enjoyed this better going in completely blind. 
And I just want to say that to anyone who's listening now that, you know, if you've not seen it or read the book, I may advise you to watch it before finishing this episode. I would say more if you haven't seen it or read it, don't punish yourself by reading the book and just watch the movie and enjoy that. <laughs> Jake loves Henry James. I do not. <laughs> so I, I have not read Turn of the Screw, but it's mostly on purpose because I have I was an English major. In fact, I was a with a focus in pre-World War II American literature. So Henry James came up a lot and I kept wanting to put him down a lot because he's awful. I hated the American. I just, I mean, there's so many like Edith Wharton books you could read and instead you read Henry James. And to me, that feels like, I don't know, white supremacy, something. It's awful. I just, there's no reason to read Henry James. Hey, you know, maybe the maybe people have enjoyed the book. I would be hesitant to speculate. I mean, people enjoy things like white paint and uh, <laughs> mowing the lawn and I don't know, the sound of white noise. I, I, I'm running out of things. I hate Henry James. It's like that scene in The Innocence with the pencil on the chalkboard. Yes, like if those kids had been reading Henry James, I would understand all of their acting out. I would blame it on that, in fact. <laughs> I've only read the first three chapters of this book, and I can safely say... So you got one period. I can safely say <laughs> that it was um, not nearly a contender for my least favorite book of all time, but you know, it was okay. It's okay. Oh, Henry James isn't my least favorite author of all time. He's on a big list of people I don't care for, but he's... It is well known you have opinions. <laughs> like I said, I was an English major. He came up a lot. He was one of those guys that... Every teacher is like, well, we have to read Henry James. And I'm sitting there in the back row going, no, we don't. <laughs> Look, there's so many Steinbeck books and Fitzgerald books and Wharton books and all these other ones. Let's read the yellow wallpaper eight times instead of reading Henry James once. <laughs> I knew neither of you had seen the movie because I had seen this before. We'll get into how in a second. And I know for Nick, at least, this had been on a list of movies he wanted to watch at some point. Yes. And we twice a year we would do our horror weekend get togethers. And I always had the Blu-ray of this present. I was like, all right, just in case someone's feeling like a classic, I can have this on hand to bust it out. But yeah, I assume both of you guys have read it already because I read it. I believe it was sophomore year high school. I haven't read any other Henry James, but I did read Turn of the Screw. And remember thinking it was all right at the time, as much as I liked anything you know of that era in high school. But I went to college and I saw The Innocence first semester freshman year. In a film class or nope. like a literature class? In, I forget the class number, but there's the one English class that like is the requirement, the intro to English that everyone has to take. 101, yeah. 105, 105. But if you were on the AP track in high school, then they would put you in a version of 105 where you would be under a grad student who would be teaching it. And it would just basically be working through whatever the theme was that the grad student wanted to do. And the one I ended up with was, I wish I could remember the guy's name, but he was terrific. And his theme was the depiction of evil in fiction, which was you started with Paradise Lost was the first thing we read. And it was showing how Paradise Lost changed the depiction of evil and everything that followed. Nice. And it was, I forget all the bits of fiction we read, but there were some movies interspersed with it. We watched Deliverance and we read the book Deliverance for that one in tandem. Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors. So it was this real weird mix. But one of the movies we watched was The Innocence. And I'll say right now, this is one of my top five favorite horror movies ever. I absolutely adore this movie. Nice. Wow. 
And this is one of the movies that, because I was coming out of high school and I was big into film, but I was still young and I wasn't big into classic movies. You know, I'd watched a lot of classic movies with my mother growing up. Funnily enough, a lot of Deborah Kerr movies who we'll be talking about in a little bit. Movies like Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, The King and I, stuff like that. But part of me was dismissive of classic stuff. And this is one of two movies that really opened my eyes. It was The Innocence and Seven Samurai was the other one, which I watched in close proximity to each other. But for reasons we'll get into, among the myriad of things I like about this movie, which is basically everything, this is a movie that legitimately shocked me and still legitimately shocks me yeah. to this day. There are elements of it, aside from what it's doing conceptually, but the brazenness of the execution of what it does is so like, whoa, to the point that I almost let out a gasp when I saw it in class initially. But yeah, it really knocked my socks off. And I watched it probably about six, seven times before we decided to do it for this episode. Yeah, I, I love the shit out of this movie. Awesome. Boy, do I feel underprepared now. <laughs> Just to throw this out there, I was reading up on the movie, and one of the things I found was a list. The Guardian had a top 25 horror films of all time, and it was number 11. And having watched it, I mean, you know, these lists are all entirely subjective, but I could see this being very easily considered one of the classics of the genre. The rest of that list was a little weird, but... <laughs> But here, I'll read it to you. This is just real quick. The top 25 horror movies, according to The Guardian from God knows when. I don't remember the year. Number one is Psycho. Number two is Rosemary's Baby. Then Don't Look Now. Then The Wicker Man, the uh, original. Classic. The Shining, The Exorcist, Nosferatu, Let the Right One In, Vampire, the PYR one, Peeping Tom, The Innocence, The Ring, The Haunting, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Dead of Night, Cabin of Dr. Caligari. Nice. Halloween, Bride of Frankenstein, Le Diabolique, Dracula, Audition. Nice. The Blair Witch Project, Evil Dead slash Evil Dead 2, Carrie, and Le Vampires. It's a fun list. Now, I think that list is mostly horse shit, but it's kind of interesting. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I don't know. I thought that was kind of an interesting mix. Yeah, it was a good, solid mix there. And Diabolique is interesting because in terms of prep for the episode, so this movie was directed by Jack Clayton. So one of the things I did for this episode was I finished just watching everything else he'd done. I'd already seen a couple of things he'd done, but I just went ahead and completed the filmography. But one of the movies I watched, Innocence was his second feature film. His first credited film was Naples is a Battlefield, which is just a 10 minute documentary short he did for the military. Then he did a short film called The Bespoke Overcoat, which is an adaptation of a play, I believe, which is on Prime. If anyone wants to see it, it's quite good. It's only 30 minutes. His first feature film was in 1959, so two years before The Innocence, and it's called Room at the Top. And it's a very good film. I think it's frustratingly short of great in a few respects. It's basically about a guy who comes from a poor English background in post-World War II who's trying to climb his way up the corporate ladder at the expense of everyone around him. In doing so, has to deal with the collateral damage he inflicts emotionally on all the people he surrounds himself with. But the reason I mention that is the lead actress in that movie is Simone Signore, who won Best Actress for that movie, and she was one of the leads in Diabolique. So when you said that, I was like, hmm. oh yeah, how what? So just to bring it back, so you got your recommendation from The Guardian. I only got two main recommendations here that sold me. I definitely wanted to see this. It was like, first off, Joe Dante cites this as his favorite horror movie. Oh! That made me very excited. I, I love me some Joe Dante. And then also uh, Guillermo del Toro has been quoted as saying that he uh, chose this as one of his six favorite fright flicks. 
<laughs> so I was like, okay, if uh, Guillermo and Joe are in, so am I. Okay, yay. Glad to know it's not just me who loves the fuck out of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is, in all the stuff I've looked up and read about, this is definitely one of those that's generally considered peak in the genre. And I, you know, look, I certainly enjoyed it. I'm not going to argue with its stature or standing in any way. I don't really have much in the way of criticism. It's just interesting that a movie that's so, I want to say, quintessential or so essential for so many people isn't streaming anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It was on the Criterion Network up until maybe like five, six months ago or something like that. I thought they would put it back up. So we're recording this at the beginning of October. I thought they would put it back up for Halloween. They didn't. They put up a really amazing bundle of 70s horror for October. And we're going to talk about one of those probably before this episode is out, which kind of ties in with this. But they haven't put the Innocents back up. So hopefully at some point it'll be made available streaming there or it'll be made available for rent. And if you have seen it and you don't own it or you somehow are able to find it online and you like it, and I know I practically say this every episode now, which is buy the Blu-ray, but we're not just peddling for sponsorship here. Much as I would really, really love a Criterion Channel sponsorship. <clears throat> We're not not peddling for sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> but the Blu-ray for this is phenomenal from the Criterion collection. It's a fantastic transfer. It's got a great commentary by Christopher Frailing. Yeah, it's something I'll probably pick up because I'd like to have it in my collection. Now, you guys have probably seen other movies by Jack Clayton, though, because I'm guessing. Yep. Now, when I was in high school, I had seen his adaptation of The Great Gatsby. Yep, I've seen that as well. And I saw uh, Something Wicked This Way It Comes. Yep, that was next. Yes. Yep, seen that one as well. Oddly enough, that's my community connection. Ooh, I was wondering what it would be. Yay! Just throwing this out there, because this was tough. And (laughs) I won't say it's a bit of a stretch. Because it's a massive stretch. But it's there. (laughs) If you squint real hard, Chevy Chase kind of looks like Jason Robards. So (laughs) So Something Wicked This Way Comes is my connection. Well, originally I was going to go with the fact that Richard Erdman and Pamela Franklin were on a bunch of the same 70s TV shows. Mm. Richard Erdman played Leonard on Community and Pamela Franklin is one of the kids in this movie. And they were on a lot of things like Police Story and Bionic Man in the 70s. They're both essentially character actors, but I couldn't find an episode that they did together. So that felt a little, but it's a connection, but just not a great one. Mm -hmm. The one I found was kind of stupid, but fun. Something Wicked This Way Comes was directed by Jack Clayton, of course. So there's the connection there. The music in it was done by James Horner. Mm -hmm. James Horner also did the music and wrote somewhere out there for an American tale. In a first season episode of Community, Troy and Abed sing somewhere out there to a mouse written by James Horner, who did the music for Something Wicked This Way Comes, directed by Jack Clayton. So there you go. That took a while to come up with. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And funnily enough, the original score for Something Wicked This Way Comes was done by uh, George Delarue, who Clayton began working with after this movie. I think he scored all the movies he did after The Innocents, and the studio threw it out because it was too dark. And Horner was brought in as a last-minute replacement. Clayton didn't love the music for this movie originally. No, he did not. The music for this movie was done by Georges Auric, who has a fantastic body of work. He did the score for Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. He did the score for Wages of Fear, which is a movie I fucking love. Roman Holiday, and then also another Deborah Carr film, which was Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, like we mentioned, which was one of the films she did with John Huston. But this movie has a staggering amount of talent in it. You know, aside from... Jack Clayton's impressive work. He hadn't done a ton going into this, but 
you've got George Orrick doing the score. It is based on a play by William Archibald, who was doing this play adapting Turn of the Screw. And John Mortimer, a screenwriter, did some work on it. But the main screenplay was written by Truman fucking Capote, who Jack Clayton was associated with because Clayton was a producer on John Huston's movie called Beat the Devil, starring Humphrey Bogart, which if you're curious about that one, that movie is apparently in public domain, so you can just find it on YouTube. It's not a great movie. I don't think it's got a cult following, but it's a fascinating example of an early movie where none of the cast gives a fuck. (laughs) It's kind of the John Huston equivalent of those modern day Adam Sandler movies where it's clear that the cast is just basically on vacation. They're using the movie as an excuse to go on a paid vacation to somewhere exotic. Beat the Devil has kind of that same feel where it's like Humphrey Bogart's like, I don't give a fuck. (laughs) But Truman Capote did the screenplay for that. And he wrote, as Clayton says, 90% of the screenplay for The Innocents. And I did read the script for The Innocents. It was missing a couple pages. We'll mention a couple bits as we go through. There's not a ton of differences. But the other member of the crew I want to get into, well, there's two. One is the editor on this is Jim Clark, who's done phenomenal stuff. In later years, he did Killing Fields. He was Mike Lee's editor on Vera Drake. Happy Go Lucky. I love me some Mike Lee. But the DP on this and this gorgeous fucking movie, and I think this movie looks amazing, mm-hmm. Yes, is Freddie Francis. And I'm guessing Nick got excited when he saw Freddie Francis's name, because Freddie Francis, following this movie, which he did as a DP, became a director. And he predominantly became a director for Hammer Horror. Yeah. So Freddie Francis directed <laughs> The Brain, The Evil of Frankenstein, The Skull, The Deadly Bees, Trog, and he did the original Tales from the Crypt movie. I love it. That's a great movie. And as he put it, he said, well, you know, I was handed all these scripts and I looked at the script and I said, well, I'll make it look as good as I can. (laughs) (laughs) But in addition to that, Freddie Francis has an impressive credit. He was the camera operator for Jack Cardiff when Cardiff was working with Powell and Pressburger. Then he actually DP'd for Powell and Pressburger on a couple films. But after this movie, he was the DP on The Elephant Man with David Lynch, The French Lieutenant's Woman, Dune. Glory, which he won an Oscar for. Nice. Scorsese's Cape Fear. And then I believe Francis's last credit was again with David Lynch. He was the DP on The Straight Story, which is a wonderful fucking movie. Impressive. That's a good list of films. Yeah. Yeah. The folks who worked on this, it's a murderer's row of talent. It's real impressive. It even starts with talent because when the film starts, the song, Oh Willow Alley, written by Paul Den, is being sung by Isla Cameron, who was, in addition to being in the film, is one of the great British folk singers. Mm. She was an integral part of the folk revival in the 60s and later that was a big part of British music. In fact, she worked with Alan Lomax. Uh, if you know Alan Lomax, he's, his field recordings and a lot of his work for the Smithsonian is how we have so many traditional folk songs in America. He was one of the key figures in traditional and folk music revival and preservation. All his stuff is with the Smithsonian, including some of Isla Cameron's stuff that she sang for him. They worked on a record together called A World Library of Folk and Primitive Music for British traditional stuff. And they also, under Folkways, put out an album called The Jupiter Book of Ballads, which is in the Smithsonian collection now. And on that, she sang House of the Rising Sun, which isn't (laughs) British. But I thought it was kind of fun because that song keeps coming up in horror movies part because it's... You know, people know it because of the animals version, but also because it's public domain. It's a traditional folk song. And if you just sing it differently, you're fine. 
as we learned <laughs> out in our eighth episode about Benson and Moorhead. So if you want to hear more about how to sing House of the Rising Sun poorly, that is the episode <laughs> for you. Isla Cameron sings it pretty well. And I would say kind of creepy, too. So the main two songs I've listened, I was listening to a bunch of her stuff coming into this because that's the angle I attack everything because I'm not as smart as Eric with <laughs> film knowledge. Yes, you are. <laughs> but the theme song in this, the Oh Willow Alley, is so creepy. Oh, my God. To start this movie, I was so happy when I started hearing like, oh, that's good. That sets the mood. And then hearing her sing House of the Rising Sun, I'm like, oh, they should have used this, too. Holy shit. <laughs> so anyway, that was just my whole shtick on her. But it's interesting. And it was a neat way to jump into the film for me. Yeah, no, this movie grabs you from go, I think, which is the hell of an opener. It's just starts on a black screen and the song is a British folk song called Oh Willow Wailing. She's singing it and it's just a black screen until you get like two thirds of the way through, at which point the 20th Century Fox logo comes up. But there's no fanfare. They just played the logo. Yeah. And the song keeps going. And I am a sucker for fucking with the music on the 20th Century Fox logo. Because one of my <laughs> favorite music cues in anything ever is Alien 3. In the opening of Alien 3, they play the 20th Century Fox fanfare. And when it starts to get towards the end, the ba 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 as it nears the end, it goes ba 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 And they stop like three notes shy from finishing. And they hold that note. And then it just fades to black. And then it crashes into the score. So it's this lovely moment where it disrupts this theme that you're so familiar with and it puts you off guard immediately the alien three score that ellen goldfall did is one of my favorite horror scores but i am an absolute sucker for anything that fucks with the 20th century fox credits apparently funny enough that threw off a lot of projectionists they thought it was a mistake so they ended up cutting it off and <laughs> just starting at the fox logo <laughs> so a lot of a lot of people in theaters lost that <laughs> huh there's also a vague, well, not really connection, but almost connection, because Jack Clayton, who directed this, turned down Alien. Did he? No shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So he could have directed two of the greatest horror movies of all time. That'd have been fascinating. Yeah, his filmography is pretty sparse. After he did Innocence in 61, he did Pumpkin Eater in 64, Our Mother's House in 67. We'll probably talk about that more when we talk about the actress who plays Flora. And then it was Great Gatsby in 74, Something Wicked in 83. And then next one was 87. His last one was 92. And that was a TV movie. Before something wicked, that gap is because he had a stroke and lost his power of speech for about five years. Mm. So, yeah, he had an interesting career. And it was, by all accounts, he was a pretty particular man who said along the lines of, I've never directed a film I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that many directors can actually say that. I was just thinking, we're at the beginning here. So I was just going to run through my normal list of who's involved bits, although we've covered most of it. We've talked about Jack Clayton, talked about Henry James. Well, I just found this hilarious that you know, this is about the turn of the screw. And he also wrote The Portrait of a Lady and The Wings of the Dove. Just feeling like there's a theme here to his titles. So, <laughs> <laughs> And they got, uh, you know, of course, Truman Capote also did In Cold Blood, which was huge for him. And Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm -hmm. So that was also worth mentioning. And this was a fun one. So this was released by 20th Century Fox. And I always do my references here. And so I wanted to say they are also brought us Underwater, mm -hmm. Jennifer's Body, and The Omen, which I thought was a very good list <laughs> for this episode. Line. I was hoping you'd bring up a list of all the movies that were shot in CinemaScope, <laughs> which is <laughs> what you see after the 20th Century Fox logo, which is one of the things that kind of fucked with Jack Clayton and Freddie Francis a bit. Yeah, he didn't like it. No, they had planned to shoot the movie in a certain aspect ratio, 
all Fox films were planned to be shot in CinemaScope, very particular format, which is a wider screen format. And they thought they were going to be exempt from it and then found out they weren't. They were like, ah, shit, we storyboarded the entire movie in a certain format. And they had to pivot a bit. And we'll talk as we go through about how they pivoted a bit. But I think it actually ends up working well for some of the visual imagery that goes through the film. The one thing I read was that this movie is what convinced them to change their policy on all movies having to be color. Like, this is the one they're like, all right, this is better black and white. Okay, fine. Well, we're willing to consider this in the future. <laughs> if any movie doesn't do it, that's a, it should be this one. Because, like, we, I mean, there's tons of gorgeous black and white movies out there. But Freddie Francis even said, I believe he won an Academy Award for Sons and Lovers was a black and white movie that he shot that he won. It, later, he won for Glory. But he even mentioned, he said, you know, of all the movies I won for, I was always surprised I didn't win one for The Innocents, because that movie looks good. <laughs> and it does. <laughs> this movie is is stunning in how it's put together. It is so damn gorgeous. You know, before we get into it, I just want to say one quick thing. So I, like I said, I hadn't read this. I hadn't seen this. I didn't know the story. I was looking forward to Bly Manor from Flanagan. And I was looking forward to watching this and getting an idea of what maybe the general plot of that was going to be, because I didn't know. And I've avoided all the trailers and all that. Now, having seen this movie, I am utterly and abjectly terrified with what Mike Flanagan is going to do to us <laughs> with Bly Manor. Well, apparently he's planning to not just adapt this story specifically. He's going to actually going to like loop in a bunch of other Henry James horror into it. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see how it hodgepodges together. That's great. Him doing this movie is terrifying. <laughs> Him doing anything with the subtext that Turn of the Screw has is terrifying. Yes. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there before we get into it. Yeah, and it's appropriate for this movie because, again, I think this movie is, personally, I would say this movie is still effective to this day. And the opening is indicative of that. Mm -hmm. We have this folk song over black screen. No fanfare over the 20th Century Fox. And when the folk song fades, you just get bird song over a black screen, soft sobs, and then just a pair of hands that come in, which are the hands of Deborah Carr playing Miss Giddens, the governess who will soon find out. The credits just play slowly. Some score seeps in by George Orrick, but it's predominantly just the sounds of Deborah Carr being distraught as her hands are start in a prayer position and then fan out and tremble and quake and approach her face. And she leans her head back in agony or ecstasy. We're not entirely sure what. And then finally get some whispery voiceover. All I want to do is save the children, not destroy them more than anything. I love children more than anything. They need affection, love, someone who will belong to them and to whom they will belong. And the original opening to the movie is quite different. We'll mention what it was at the end of the episode, but this was a good change. <laughs> if you haven't read the story, you're not exactly sure of the context for this opening because we dissolve from this to another scene with Deborah Carr's Miss Giddens. So if you're unfamiliar with the story, it's like, okay, is this flashing forward, flashing back? Where is it in the chronology? So it makes for a very effective opening. And again, it's so quiet and unnerving and where it's just her breathing and her the quaking in her voice is so audible and so pronounced. There's so much quiet emotion there, but it just like blasts out. It's really well done. Also, if you're watching a movie that you know is a horror movie or supposed to be scary, and the first line is, all I want to do is save the children, you know you are in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Ron Howard voice. She didn't. 
<laughs> yeah. So now that incredibly moving, very kind of disturbing, well shot, sound quality amazing, perfect opening was followed by maybe like the funniest part for me of the entire film. Michael Redgrave. Michael fucking Redgrave. I love this man. He's the uncle. And I swear to God, I have never seen a man more appropriately act the I am proper and prim, and I'm going to try and be clear and honest about this, but I really just don't give two shits about these kids. You know, <laughs> It's like uncle of the year nominee. You know? <laughs> I felt bad at how much I liked this guy right off the bat. Because <laughs> it, it's just one of those like, yeah, he's talking about basically he's abandoning these kids and he doesn't want fuck all to do with them. And he doesn't even want to be bothered with news or updates yeah. about them. He's like, he's the, my number one thing for you is never write me. I never want to hear from you again is my number yes. one thing. <laughs> and it's just so blunt and honest. It's like, well, all right, look, that's better. He's not ticking around. He's just like, look, they're your kids now. Enjoy my mansion. Fuck off. Here's my mansion, my money. Don't talk to me again. Because, yeah, because he has these orphaned niece and nephew from his brother's side, I believe, in the book. And they are currently staying at his country estate in Bly. Which, when he said that, I was just like, Mike Flanagan! He's our favorite human. I'm going to say like five times this episode. <laughs> so here's how my brain is deformed. When I was watching that scene, the thing that most came to mind immediately was Return of the Living Dead Necropolis. Because the kid in that was living with his uncle, who was very clear about not giving a shit <laughs> and not caring about him at all, you know, with the fake cornflakes and all that. And his parents, you know, had died. And I didn't like that my brain immediately went there because it's like, no, stupid. This is a good movie. Come on, brain, saddle up. And it just... <laughs> When you said Return of the Living Dead, I was like, where is he going? Is he going to say like he pictured Jimmy Karen as the uncle? <laughs> He's like, truth is very seldom understood by any but imaginative persons. And I want to be quite truthful. And I brought my niece and nephew here. <laughs> <laughs> like the intro. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you know, and I feel like there's plenty of other things for me to think about or, you know, uses the touchstone for this kind of character in this kind of scene. But nope. Return of the Living Dead Necropolis, because I'm broken, <laughs> my brain is diseased, and this podcast has ruined me. But, you know, it's like, so he's doing this Also, whole thing. watch our first episode, or listen to our first episode. You can't watch absolutely. it. Absolutely. But I absolutely love this interview, because, like, it's all prim and proper and done correctly, but it really breaks down to, look, these kids got dumped on me, I don't want them, I'm giving them to you, things were going great, I had this other governess, but she died, dun, dun, dun. And everything's going smoothly, and she had the audacity to kick it. So just remember, whatever happens on you, peace, I'm out. <laughs> he is living the bachelorist of bachelor lifestyles, and is so incredibly honest about it. His entire perspective is basically, it has come to my attention that there are people in Italy I have not yet fucked. So I'm heading there. <laughs> it's like that Scott Steiner promo where he was trying to say all the countries where he's wrestled people. And he just said, you know, I've wrestled a lot of countries. And this guy's like, you know, I fucked a lot of countries. <laughs> because he, he's very on Front Street, which is basically... Yeah, and he's just he likes business and women. Yeah, this is not Little Orphan Annie you're watching. <laughs> now, I really, really like Michael Redgrave. 
he is also my least favorite part of the film, but I still really like oh, him. Okay. The reason he's my least favorite is he's great in this element of it, where he's basically talking about, could you do me a favor and <laughs> fuck off with these two little shit bags I want nothing to do with? I'll pay you well, so long as you don't fucking call me. <laughs> he's terrific at that element, but there's a decided subtext to this scene which then becomes subtext throughout a lot of the film, which is Miss Giddens, the character played by Deborah Carr, who's this governess, who we learn she's the daughter of a parson, and now this is her first time taking on a governess position. But she's put in her resume, you know, more than anything, I love children. But through this scene, a major subtext of it is her sexual repression. Yep. And her attraction to him, to the uncle, played by Michael Redgrave, is very apparent. In her delivery, is, is she is, to put it bluntly, she's DTF for the uncle here. <laughs> yeah, her dap is WAP in this scene. <laughs> wow. I feel like a bad person after that joke. <laughs> but yeah, and she's having a hard time processing these emotions. But the flip side of that is the movie even acknowledges that the uncle is supposed to have sort of this magnetism to his personality. Yep. It's directly acknowledged later in the film because they allude to it in terms of some personality traits that Miles has acquired from him. But it comes through very clearly in the script where he's very overtly being flirtatious with Miss Giddens Mm -hmm. in order to get her to sign on for this gig. To the point that before Michael Redgrave was asked, Jack Clayton originally asked Cary Grant to do this role. Wow. And Cary Grant was going to do it, except Cary Grant said, I'll do it, but I want the uncle to come back at the end. So he feels like more of a presence in the movie, which Clayton obviously turned down. Nope. He said, I think I'm probably the only person in 1961 who told Cary Grant no when offering him a role in the movie, but I did it. It's the right move. It's the right move. But it gives you the idea of, you know, that that's where the avenue they were going. Because mm-hmm. Cary Grant would absolutely have that subtext to him during yep. this sort of scene. And the subtext of her with her sexual repression, you're right. It comes up again and again throughout the film. And every time she has that, you can see it. There's this nervousness and this almost just below the surface fear that is always just kind of brimming there whenever it's touched upon. It's fascinating when you're looking for it in the film. Yeah, I'll toss this out there early. I think this is Deborah Carr's best performance ever. She has said that. She's wonderful in so many things. Everyone has seen something with her in it. You know, she's in King and I. She's in Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which is one of my absolute favorite movies, along with this one. Separate Tables, From Here to Eternity, all these fantastic performances. This one is her best performance. It's her most nuanced. And she benefits also from this being a performance with her playing a governess where her previous roles influence the read of the character in this film and make the twisted angles that her character goes through in this movie that much more unnerving the fact that it's his holy shit it's deborah card doing all this <laughs> twisted fucking subtext it's great and it, it's also good that it's her best role because she's on camera something like 94 the 98 minutes yes i believe she is in every single scene of the movie now that is not to say that there are scenes in the movie where her character is not conscious yes or things that are adjacent to her but there's a scene where someone's watching her while she sleeps however i believe her character is present to some degree in every single sequence. Which makes sense. I mean, to a very large degree, she's the narrator of the story. You're seeing everything through her eyes. Yeah, and depending on your read of it, it's very crucial that it entirely be from her perspective, depending on your read. And that fits the original story, where basically this is a a recounting of a woman's experience. Yeah. Written by Henry James. So that's very (laughs) accurate. (laughs) So, 
after this interview, she's hired. And I kind of like that he doesn't care about her credentials either. No. She's like, you don't care that I'm not qualified? It's like, I don't give a shit. You showed up. Your qualifications are you care about children. Sounds good to me. You don't look like you're about to die, so off you go. <laughs> you like kids? Yeah. You want the job? Yeah. Cool. No backsies. <laughs> it, it, it was very much a, you like children and you're good in the eyes. Here are your papers. <laughs> I'll admit my first my thought after this scene was, what's wrong with these kids? <laughs> well, turns out <laughs> we're getting there. So she gets the job and she is taken to Bly Manor by carriage. And she is immediately enamored with the locale. So much so that she just gets out and walks in from the gate. And then she gets past the lake, the gazebo. She's taking the garden path. It's just all serene and lovely. When she hears someone calling the name Flora. And then she looks up and there is Flora in front of her. Yeah, so our first image of Flora, now she is standing before Miss Giddens, but the first time Miss Giddens sees her is she's looking down, and we see Flora, who is reflected in the surface of a lake, or this little pond. And this is important for a couple reasons. First off, let's mention real quick, like we briefly mentioned earlier, Flora is played by Pamela Franklin. She's been in things like The Legend of Hell House, The Nanny, Necromancy, Police Story, Bionic Man, Fantasy Island. And she's great. One of the things that helps this movie is both of the kids, I think, are phenomenal. But if you like the sort of frank and somewhat disturbing angle to children that this movie has, check out Jack Clayton's movie from 1967 called Our Mother's House, which is about, I think it's six or seven children who live in a home where their mother is sick. The mother dies. And rather than tell anybody, they just simply bury the mother and go about living and pretend that she's still alive to the outside world because one of the kids is able to forge her signature so they can still collect her checks. And it's about basically this sort of, uh, for lack of a better description, Lord of the Flies-ish society that develops with these kids who are now taking care of themselves in absence of any sort of parental figure. But the oldest daughter of the family is played by Pamela Franklin again, and she's fantastic in that. It's not as twisted as The Innocents, and it's not as potentially supernatural, but it does have elements that lean in that direction. So she's great, but also this introduces us to one of the big, 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 big angles of this movie, which is the concept of distorted perceptions yep. and distorted emotional perceptions being manifested in a physical, tangible, visible way. Because when we see Flora, we see her reflected in a lake. And the lake is quivering, or this pond is quivering, so it's, there's a distortion element to it. So everything is through this distorted, somewhat warped prism in some way. And it's also important that she is, to flash forward to something we'll see later in the movie, that is probably the most famous apparition in this movie, is a character by the name of Miss Jessel, who appears on the surface of a lake. And what we see here is the complete inversion of that, whereas we see Miss Jessel later in a black dress astride the surface of a lake, Flora is inverting that when we first see her, where she is in a white dress reflected in a lake. So everything is this very distinct inversion of each other. Nice. And Flora is very directly tied to Miss Jessel, as Miles will be connected to a character by the name of Quint, who we'll talk about later. But we'll talk about that imagery as we go through. But just as the character of Miss Giddens has this very particular worldview, which is somewhat distorted as a result of her potentially having some sort of psychosis, this manifests itself in so many ways. We talked about CinemaScope earlier, the format in which it was shot, and it even manifests in that way. 
We mentioned before that they didn't want to shoot this movie in CinemaScope. They wanted to shoot it in a smaller format, but they had to shoot it in CinemaScope. So their solution to that was, all right, fuck it. For scenes where we want a smaller frame, we're just going to put a lens in front of the camera that has black on the sides that you know basically blots out the side of the images and helps narrow the frame of vision. So it helps them frame things the way they plan to in the storyboard stage, but it gives you, there's this visual distortion. The literal lens you're seeing this movie through is often distorted and obscured, and I love it. It really gives you a sense of unease throughout the picture. It gives you, without really knowing why or understanding, things just feel slightly off. And it's a really magnificent way of doing that. We talked about it actually in our episode on the craft, how subtle some of the special effects in that were. And while this isn't special effects, what, what the concept is that there's these things around you that you aren't necessarily immediately cognizant of that aren't right. Mm-hmm. And your brain on some level knows that this isn't right, but your conscious level where you're really watching the movie doesn't pick up on that. So it makes you feel uneasy. And it's throughout this entire movie. You never feel at ease. It doesn't feel like you're watching, you know, some happy black and white, nice movie with, I don't know, a happy ending. You just feel wrong and off the entire runtime. And it's a fascinating way of doing it. And to that effect, something that throws you off a bit is how Flora introduces herself to Miss Giddens, which is very sweetly, but also kind of shocked me because she stole Nick's pickup line, which is she introduces herself to Miss Giddens by saying, are you afraid of reptiles? Because I've got one in my pocket and he's very eager to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh man, Hannah's heard that so many times. (laughs) Who told you? (laughs) But in this case, the titular reptile is a tortoise by the name of Rupert. Poor Rupert suffers a pretty rough fate later in the movie, but we'll get to that. Yeah, Rupert has a kind of a rough time, the poor tortoise. But he's pretty cool looking and chill, you know, like a tortoise. He's, he's just getting by, man. Just going to throw this out there, though. Dear listener, you thought we couldn't do highbrow, and we can, but we can still bring it down to our level. Anyway, enjoy the rest <laughs> of the program. <laughs> no movie is beyond our reach to drag into the gutter. <laughs> you will live down here with us. <laughs> Here's our very detailed and very interesting analysis of the opening shot. Now, dick joke. <laughs> we bring it all. But then uh, we they're taken to the house and we meet Mrs. Gross, played by Megs Jenkins from Oliver and David Copperfield. And she's very happy to see Flora with a governess again. It's just ever since the previous governess has died, they've been trying to make do as best they can. But having that official governess on site is going to help a lot now. And an important image when Miss Giddens comes in and is first looking about the place. A, this is where the filters we mentioned on the side of the frame come into place is on the interiors helping, despite it being this massive set, gives it this vaguely claustrophobic feeling just kind of on your peripheral vision. But also, as she walks in, one of the first things she does is there's a bouquet of white roses on the table, touches them, and they immediately crumble, which becomes a recurring thing. Every time Miss Giddens touches flowers, which is they just kind of wilt and crumble immediately. I wonder what that's an analogy for. (laughs) Well, it means that she's about to molt if she doesn't get the cells so she can keep, you know, perpetuating her existence since she was born in Rome and, you know, lives in Italy and used to date this guy with a weird jacket in spring. Welcome to episode eight, people. (laughs) (laughs) As a side note, the interiors were 
shot on a set in Shepperton Studios in Surrey, but the exteriors were shot at an actual Gothic mansion called Sheffield Park, which is in Sussex in England, and recently sold. So if you search for Sheffield Park in Sussex, you're going to get a real estate site and you can look at a whole bunch of pictures inside the house now. They look different. Just thought I'd throw that out there because it was kind of something fun. No, yeah, it's 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 a gorgeous fucking... Yeah, a little out of my price range. Just a little. Just a smidge. Yeah. But to this effect, as Miss Giddens is talking to Mrs. Gross and they begin talking about the children, the, the missing child by the name of Miles, who's away at school, but they also start talking about the uncle. When the subject of the uncle comes up, Mrs. Giddens crosses over to a mirror. Again, in mirror specifically are an image that Clayton leans on in his film Room at the Top. So that's continuing here. Mirrors, Nick's favorite. Yeah. Nick. <laughs> <laughs> she crosses to a mirror at the mention of the uncle and looks at herself as if, you know, examining her parents. And this is where she smells a rose during this as she begins to talk about, oh, and what do you know about the uncle? So again, all that subtext with the uncle is just very much coming forward. And Miss Gross segues this inadvertently into someone else by the name of a character we will come to find is named Quint, who she refers to as having the devil's own eye. But we get our first kind of big sudden music sting. And Miss Giddens says, what was that? And Miss Gross says, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. Oh, look, bath time. And, <laughs> and we cut to Flora in the bathtub and everyone's being playful. And Miss Giddens is just, you know, it's like, oh, man, this is such a fun kid. I'm so happy I'm here. And it transitions from them leaving the bathtub and going back. And Flora is talking to Miss Giddens about the house and the dark rooms and stuff. We'll get to that in a second. One script note I wanted to mention is there is a brief conversation at the end of the bathing sequence that was cut which is after flora gets out and she's being dried with a towel you know, mrs gross hands her a nightdress and the script says mrs gross takes the nightdress that's hanging on the fender and holds it out flora runs to her from the towel and mrs giddens helps her into it flora looks down flora look we see a line of small wet footprints from the bath flora somebody's been here miss giddens you silly goose it was you she gets Flora's dressing gown and buttons her into it. Flora steps into her slippers. Mrs. Gross is busy tidying up the bath. The footsteps are drying and disappearing. Flora, they're vanishing. Miss Giddens, they're getting dry. Flora, so am I, but I'm not vanishing. She looks down. How can you tell where I've walked? You can't tell that, can you? So, and then it transitions to the scene in the hallway. Not a scene that was necessary, but in terms of vaguely creepy imagery that verges on the supernatural, the concept of using condensation footprints that quickly dissipate. What a great kind of image to kind of ease you into the more overtly, potentially supernatural stuff we get in the movie. That's definitely interesting. Kind of glad they didn't film it because you watch enough horror movies, you know, any kid in a bath scene just doesn't end well. So, And now as we get, we get Flora showing Miss Giddens around, mentions all the dark rooms that they have. And Miss Giddens asks, what do you see when you look in those dark rooms? And she decidedly does not answer that question. Miss Giddens is putting her in bed and Flora has a conversation. She discusses the possibility that she might not go to heaven because she might not be a good girl. She says, I might not be. And if I weren't, wouldn't the Lord just leave me to walk around? Isn't that what happens to some people? Miss Giddens doesn't respond, but we're getting some heavy ass bedtime conversation right off the bat. <laughs> it was one of those lines where I was watching it and thinking, oh man, Mike Flanagan is going to work me like a speed bag with stuff like that. <laughs> I don't mean to keep alluding to it, but it's hard to separate those things because I do have more of a frame of reference with Flanagan than I do with this particular movie. So it was kind of the touchstone for me when I was thinking about it. But the kid is incredibly creepy. Yes. And it's one of those things because this was in 1961. And I often wonder 
sometimes with stuff like that was is she meant to be very creepy or is it just how i view things through my you know 20 20 lens as opposed to how it was at the time i think she's meant to be creepy but it's still kind of hard to tell yes no my two cents is and correct me if i'm wrong eric i know you've done a bit more digging on this than me but we're talking about child here a little bit of spoilers who is orphaned she's lost her mother she's lost her father She's been Nick's about to tell us all orphans are haunted. She's been disowned <laughs> by her uncle. But on top of that, they've also had this uh, governess and another character who we'll discuss more later also die on their watch. So we have these relatively young children who have had four huge impacting deaths in their life. And that that shit warps children. It changes them in a way. They approach death more head on to some degree. You know, it's like, so She's decidedly more interested in what happens when you die because she's watched four people she loves die. She's very interested later on in how things die, which we see later when she's watching a spider eat a butterfly. You know, it's it's actually very normal for children to react this way when they've had this much trauma in their lives, especially when in that time frame, they're kind of told to button it up and keep it to yourself. (laughs) See, I was joking about that all orphans are haunted thing, but I guess Nick was serious. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) From my perspective, getting to kind of the crux of the film a bit, since we're touching on this, the movie's very much predicated on the single question, which is, is Miss Giddens the problem or is it ghosts? But this is a situation which the important thing to me is the question. I have what I believe the answer to be, but I think the answer is essentially negligible. Yes. It's very much this movie is about that question. And to that end, you need to walk a tightrope to provide evidence to either interpretation of that. And the one constant you have with that coming out of it, like Nick mentioned, is these children do have trauma. It's interesting because that question being so important is why Truman Capote worked on the film at all, because the original draft didn't have that subtext. It was all all ghosts. You know, this is definitely supernatural. And Clayton brought him on because he, he didn't want that. I feel it's important going into this movie to do your best to be in the mindset of being on that tightrope. I think the more that is a question for you and could go either way, the more you'll enjoy this film. I came into it solidly on the opinion that this woman is just nuts. And so it was a fun movie for me. To approach it that way and go, oh, okay, this is an illusion. Oh, this is a hallucination, you know, and kind of tear it apart like that. But I think I would have had a much better time being unsure of the movie. And I think if you can keep that mindset, you'll enjoy it more. See, I didn't know much about it going in. I just, people refer to it as a ghost story. So I assumed it was a ghost story. But as the movie goes along, I'm like, is this a ghost story? Because it's not necessarily a ghost story. So I appreciated it on that level. Yeah, a lot of the fun of this movie is watching how it plays at both hands of its possible interpretations. Ghosts or batshit protagonists. Why not both? (laughs) And to that end, so we get during her first night as floors being put to bed, we hear the sound of an animal being injured outside. And Mrs. Giddens responds, not sure what that was and it sounds like some animal being injured and flora says oh miss gross tells us we hear stuff like that just pretend not to hear it and this is where we have a very key line from mrs giddens depending on your interpretation which is sometimes one can't help imagining things 
Now, in the finished film, we don't see the source of what made the noise. In the script, in the sequence following this, as she's walking outside, we see a nightingale lying on the ground whose neck has been broken, Mm. which is similar to an image that's going to come up later in the film. But for now, what we get is Miss Giddens, who's being informed by Miss Gross that she has a letter. And Flora comes to read the letters with her. She's got two letters, one which is from Miss Giddens' family, which contains a photo of her, specifically from Miss Giddens' sister. And then the other one, is from my well initially it's from the uncle who says (laughs) i didn't open this shit read it for me and deal with it (laughs) now if you'll excuse me i'm gonna go back to fucking italy yep and sure enough so she opens the letter and it informs her that miles has been expelled miles being flora's brother but flora has already alluded to this previously where she made mention that Miles was coming home, which Miss Giddens was like, how can he be coming home? You're talking about for the holiday, right? That's that's a ways off. And when Miss Giddens then asked for us, Did, didn't you say you knew this was going to happen? And this is where you get one of the more interesting shots of the film, which is this, what I assume they used a split diopter to set up the shot, which is, oh, look, it's a lovely spider and it's eating a butterfly. And sure enough, it is the actress who plays Flora. You can see this butterfly flailing around in cobweb like oh that's fucked up (laughs) (laughs) but yeah this comes back to you know that there are all these coincidences that that occur that you have to ask yourselves are they coincidence did flora mishear their conversation and think that they were saying miles would be coming and got excited about that or did she somehow know miles was coming you know Mm -hmm. psychic ghosts the worst kind (laughs) sure enough next we get Miles coming. So all we get initially was that simply there's a reference to Miles having been an injury to the other students, but we don't really get more details beyond that. But Miss Giddens is immediately concerned of a child who could potentially, as she puts it, contaminate. And we get a shot of Miles on the train. He's played by Martin Stevens, who you might know from The Village of the Damned and The Witches. And not much else. Not much else. <laughs> no, he acted for like like seven, eight years or something around this time and then retired. I think he became a professor or something along those lines. But he hit some like serious, you know, iconic roles. So good for him. Yeah. And again, kids are terrific in this. And he's great. Yes. And as we first see him, he immediately presents Miss Giddens with flowers. He's a charmer. He's a lot younger than I expected him to be. Again, I didn't know anything about this coming into it. So when he saw the trains, like, oh, wait, it's a young kid? Well, now I'm confused, but he's like 10, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. Is he, though? Which plays into, again, as far as how unnerving some of the directions this movie goes and its brazenness is how directly uh-huh. they tied Miles in with his uncle. And mm-hmm. as we they were talking about the uncle's kind of magnetic personality earlier between Miss Giddens and Miss Gross, as Miss Giddens was staring at a mirror playing with roses, we instantly get Miles bringing her flowers. and. The scene that follows this is they're in the carriage and Miss Giddens is trying to create conversation with Miles, but also kind of coax a reason for why the hell did you get expelled out of him in a roundabout way? (laughs) You got to give credit for Flora for looking out when when Miss Giddens sets up, you know, did you have a good term in school? Flora instantly. Look, Miles, there's the lake. I was like, oh, she's a good wingman. Way to look out for your brother, Flora. And this is where Miles also ends the conversation with Miss Giddens by saying, may I tell you something? I think you're far too pretty to be a governess. Completely deflects the entire conversation into, let's talk about you. You're pretty. (laughs) But she responds, and I think you're far too young to be such a deceitful flatterer. And as everyone laughs and looks away, watch her expression that follows it. 
and just oh my god it's, just, it's it's where I, I note most of my notes for this movie are just exclamation points. Where oh my god, this scene! I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, now we get Miles is back. Miss Giddens is like, oh, you know, this isn't what I expected. You know, I think this had to be a misunderstanding. This kid is lovely. Get back. She puts Miles to bed, and again, trying to sort of coax answers out of him for what's going on. And this is where we get a sequence where you know Miles is laying in bed, turns his hair, and we get a single teardrop running down his cheek and then miss giddens is trying to calm him now the image of the teardrops important because it's going to come back to something later in the film but miss giddens is trying to console him and the coldness in this kid's eyes as he stares back at her and then for a second his eyes flare and the windows blow open the candle goes out and this is where we get one of the iconic lines of the movie which is miles saying you know don't be frightened it was only the wind my dear the wind blew it out and also key words in there, among other things, being my dear, this child mm-hmm. using that particular phrase to someone significantly older than him. It's worth noting, too, on that end, that Deborah Carr at this point was significantly older than the governess was supposed to be. Yep. The governess as written is supposed to be in her 20s, I believe. Like early 20s. Yeah. And Deborah Carr obviously being older than that, which in this movie is a benefit because it makes where the story goes that much more problematic and that much more unsettling. Also worth noting on the candles, the shot of this candle going out, the candles for this movie were specially made where they had four wicks, which were tied together. So when you lit them, they blazed like hell, which made the scenes where folks are walking around with candles, the candlelight popped extra bright because it was four simultaneous Hmm. wicks going. That's interesting. They mentioned it made continuity problematic because with four wicks, shit burns down faster, which means if you do multiple takes, the candle continuity is going to get fucked up. But that's right. It really makes the visuals pop as people walk because this movie is a lot of Deborah Carr walking around with candelabras. So really got their mileage out of this kind of ties us into the craft. I guess Lirio's candles, candles, candles shop supplied him with the props for the innocence. <laughs> <laughs> for which we can do that. Didn't have the nice snap light factor, though. Yeah. <laughs> and so we go from there to a scene in the daylight. Again, a scene of Miss Giddens with roses and she's cutting roses with scissors. And now we get Mike Flanagan's cameo in the movie. Yes! <laughs> the hand-hating cherub. This little Cupid hates hands almost as much as Mike Flanagan, where she parts this bunch of roses and sees a statue. Now, here's how this statue is described in the script, which is exactly how it appears in the film. It stands, its head tilted back, its infantile, toothless mouth widely smiling at her. In each of its outstretched hands, it clasps another hand, but these other hands are broken at the wrists. The stone bodies belonging to them lie in the tall grass. A small foot, sole uppermost, juts up like a toadstool. A severed head lies with its nose pressed into the ground. Like a small black tongue, a beetle appears between the parted lips of the standing Cupid. And that's the scene we get. It's just as creepy in the finished film as it is described there. Worth noting that the image of the black insect comes back in the original script. The second sequence with Flora in the gazebo which we'll get to later but towards the end of the film while miss giddens is confronting flora there there was originally a beat in the script which said a little black insect drops from the ceiling onto flora's lap she picks it up looking up at the roof as she does so flora oh look a dead beetle do you suppose there are any more up there and then it goes into one of the pre-existing lines but interesting the visual continuity of what we have in the finished film which is this beetle climbing out and dropping below frame as it goes down, and then later in the film would be this beetle plummeting down 
from out of sight into frame. Again, we would add hmm. a visual continuity there, but that was trimmed. And as she pulls away from this creepy as fuck visual image, we get a creepy as fuck auditory bit. Yep. Which is no audio at all. There's been like this consistent sound of wildlife and insects or birds. And then when she's startled by the statue, there's an immediate response. Just silence. Dead silence. And Miss Giddens' attention is somehow drawn to the top of a nearby tower where she sees a figure. She believes to be male, believes to be an adult male, but the sun is blinding her, so it's impossible to entirely discern. I do like that they set this up bookended by potential causes. Like, you have that moment of silence, and then you see the man in the tower. So it could be that this entity has caused this to happen and wants its attention to be known. Or, before that, her actually being startled by the statue could have been a stress trigger, which caused all of this to happen. Again, walking that beautiful tightrope of, is she actually seeing this? Is this really happening? Or is this all in her mind? Yeah, the sound suddenly returns after this. So, yep, she has this, again, could be delusion, could be tangible. We get a sudden change. So, whereas in the sequence leading up to this, when the noise returns, it's simply just a chorus of birdsong, which we get often. Enter to the base of the tower, and suddenly we get the buzzing of flies. Not the last time we'll hear this when Miss Giddens enters a room. But she goes to the top of the tower, opens it up to find dozens of pigeons and Miles sitting there. Covered in pigeons. With three pigeons on him. <laughs> and I do not envy how many times that poor child must have been shit on <laughs> during the making of this. <laughs> <laughs> it's good luck. <laughs> so Miss Giddens says, where's the man who was up there? And he says, what man? I didn't see any man. And Miss Giddens alludes to, oh, you know, maybe I did just see something. I haven't been sleeping well. And Miles says, I know, Flora told me. Because early in the film, Flora was watching Miss Giddens as she slept. Miss Giddens says, all right, well, I don't know what I saw. She heads out. As she leaves, Miles turns to the bird on his finger and goes, and then we transition away from that. And then we get another reminder of Miss Giddens' sheltered life as Miss Groves is telling her, you know, you've never been away from home and you grew up in a fucking Barsons place. (laughs) And we're reminded of that. And all of a sudden, Miss Giddens, is she's still trying to grapple with what she may or may not have seen, Miles is now giving a quote-unquote expedition, which is he's going out for a ride on his pony. In the script, he does this more impressive, like, series of jumps and stuff for the horse. You know, lets go of it and puts his arm out to the side. Things you could not do with an actual child in making a film. So obviously what we get is they just kind of shoot it. So it looks like he's going around very quickly as they kind of play with close-ups and how they move the image through the frame. But this is also where we get, again, them playing with the auditory bits of the movie, which is now instead of the cooing of pigeons that we have, we have the cawing of crows as this weird sound occurs as Miles is writing, which again draws Miss Giddens attention. Cut back to the interior. Miles is drawing a picture of a horse. And we're big comic fans, and we know how much comic creators always gripe about drawing horses. Miles does a pretty good horse for a sage. I was really impressed. Yeah, it's not bad. Like, that was probably a better horse than you know, some comic folks would turn out. And to that end, you know, Flora then hands her piece over to Miss Giddens. And I love this. Oh, the <laughs> piece. <laughs> this is such a sibling thing to do. Yeah, because Miss Giddens is like, oh, you might grow up to be an artist. And immediately, Miles is just like, ah, she's just being nice. Bullshit. Your picture is bad in your bed. <laughs> yep. And then also, I really wanted it to be, while Miles is doing this horse thing, I had comics on the brain. So it was really wish Flora had like handed over this really like Rob Liefeldy image 
where you just get Deborah Kerr looking at it and say, why, it's lovely, child. But where are his feet? <laughs> and what are all the pouches for? <laughs> so this is where we get, just really briefly, Miles is, like Nick mentioned, saying, you know, she's bullshitting you in a very nice way. But Miles is then talking about what he could be when he grows up. And he says, there's nothing I want to be except what I am, a boy living in Bly. And this is where he has the shot. I fucking love, which is as he rolls over on the floor and just kind of has an arm crook behind him as he looks up and he only get one of his eyes coming through in light. Everything else is in shadow and it's so perfectly shot. This is where Miss Giddens again talks about her cloistered background in a Parsons house, which was, as she puts it, too small for secrets. Yep. And at the mention of secrets, Miles and Flores share a very not subtle look <laughs> at all. This very <laughs> yeah, Miss Giddens talks about how, like, the majority of her growing up, she had to stay quiet and often play hide and seek. Like, it just gives this horrible image of her, like, spending half her life in a closet. Yeah, they, they had to stay quiet when her father was writing sermons, but when he left, they were able to play hide and seek all over the house. As a preacher's kid, I can say we were let out of the house once in a while. <laughs> I just wanted the kids to go, oh, you played hide and seek? Oh, Miss Giddens, you're a freak. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Giddens, living on the edge. Freaks who sneak. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to reference every single one of our episodes tonight. <laughs> oh, challenge accepted. Because appropriately enough, so Miss Giddens uses this as a segue and says, all right, let's play hide and go seek. The kids go off to hide. Miss Giddens goes off to find them, sees a figure she believes to be Anna, who's one of the other maids at the house, moving through the end of the hallway. All we see is a figure in shadow. She calls out to Anna. The figure doesn't respond. Miss Giddens is disturbed, but all right, just keeps going about looking for the kids. And heads up into the attic from Stuart Gordon's dolls. Because it is this <laughs> attic of the home, which again is filled with all this miscellaneous wooden equipment. We have a clown figurine. The bobbing head. We have a rocking horse, which will soon be set in motion. And we have a music box. Get used to hearing this music box. Because the music box plays Oh Willow Whaley, the same tune that opened the movie. And in conjunction with finding this music box, we have a photo, what they call a miniature, of Quint, who was the valet for the household. Peter Quint, played by uh, Peter Wingard, who was also in Flash Gordon. Clytus, I'm bored. What playthings <laughs> do you have to offer me today? Yeah, so I was like, it's fucking Clytus. I also have a note here. He also did a lot, a lot of TV work. And the one that stood out for me was he was in a Peter Davison Doctor Who story arc for the Planet of Fire. Oh, nice. Nice. So I was like, oh, I know that one. I know this guy. <laughs> he had a good career. In this, his primary function is he has a great face, which we see in this miniature. Yep. And important to note that the miniature is cracked diagonally all the way through. Again, warped perspectives in every single yep. surface you can get. And before we really have a chance to appreciate this, Miles demonstrates that he has a pretty good sleeper hold because he sneaks up behind <laughs> Mrs. Giddens, locks this thing in, and we get one of those sequences, which is Miss Giddens starts to panic. And is it Miles actually deliberately trying to hurt her or is this her you know misconstruing things again whose perspective are we seeing this through she's clearly disturbed by it too like him coming out of nowhere grabbing her hurting her and then not listening to her immediately she's, she's got this look of she always has this fight or flight response that seems to flutter behind her eyes mm -hmm. i too would be disturbed if a 10 year old kid who talks like a 30 year old man came up and put me in a sleeper hold <laughs> and you know ignored me telling you stop Fair point. I don't advocate hitting kids in any situation, but um, if she had swatted him, it'd have been like, well, yeah, 
I okay. understand. <laughs> what's, what's the, the Chris Rock line? Yeah, that's what I was doing. <laughs> Not saying you should have done it. Just I understand. I understand. Jake just wanted Deborah Carr to reenact that one kill scene from Death Wish 2 that Charles Bronson has. I just wanted Miss Giddens to draw a gun and tell me, Miles, do you believe in Jesus? Why, of course, Miss Giddens. Oh, lovely, because you're going to meet him. Blam! <laughs> <laughs> well, I think when we were, I was watching it, I put something in our chat room like, I don't advocate beating kids, but <laughs> this was the scene that triggered that. Maybe just this once. <laughs> so Flora then intervenes and says, you know, all right, Miss Giddens, how about you go hide? And she says, all right, anything gets me the fuck away from Miles trying to choke me out. So she heads down to the living room area. Hides behind a curtain, tucks her feet in so they're not seen. And now we get what is probably my favorite shot in the movie. I'll probably say that three or four more times later, but I really think it's this one, which is as she's standing behind the curtain, we get Peter Wingard, like we just mentioned, who is on a rail, who is rolled up from the darkness right behind her at the window. Now, having seen the miniature, she has a frame of reference for what he looks like. So this is the first time we see what may or may not be an apparition of Quint. And as he sits there, all we get, again, there's no sudden swell of music and there's no trembling strings. There's no nothing. It is dead silence, her reaction and his breathing as he stares at her through the window. And again, it's not a clear shot of him through the window. It is warped. It is distorted. It's a little fogged up. And as the sound of his breath fogging this up, remember that image of fogged up glass, which we'll get to later, also with Quint. And then he pulls back. And again, I've mentioned before, I have a thing for eyes gleaming in the dark. That's one of my things. And they constructed this so that there are perfect pinpricks of light. Yep. Which is as he retreats back into the dark, you can still see these pinpricks. It's creepy as hell. It is yep. so well staged. Again, it is. If you question at all how effective an older film can be in managing to unnerve, this is one to give a shot because there are elements of it that are still immaculately staged, this being one of them. And again, Miss Giddens peers outside, doesn't see anything. Here's a squawking bird, not a pigeon this time. Again, keep note of what bird you hear when. And then Miss Giddens turns around to hear Miss Gross coming in, and Mrs. Gross's image is overlapping on the glass as Miss Giddens peers around. And Miss Giddens says, you know, I saw someone who was handsome, handsome and obscene. Mrs. Gross is able to kind of, you know, put two and two together basically and says, oh, that must be Peter Quint, the master's valet. But can't be him because he's all kinds of dead. <laughs> and at this revelation, the children are laughing. And now we get a direct dissolve from Miss Giddens looking at this photo of Quint that she found to her moaning and sweating in her sleep. She seems to have nightmares like almost every night. The real moany kind of nightmare. Yes. And, and it's the question. Is, are they nightmares or something else? But now we get her going with the children. This is where we get the squeaky pencil sequence. Oh, God. <laughs> this killed me. It killed me. I was watching. I was going, oh, man, this this is the part where Jake's going to make a statement. <laughs> <laughs> this is another one of those situations where, you know, I understand. Yeah, Miss Giddens does well in not flinging a table at Flora. Flora is using her pencil on a chalkboard sequence and just constant squeaking. Miles throws her under the bus and says she's trying to be a shit, and they squabble. Such a polite way of saying, you little shit. 
Yeah, Flora basically apologizes, saying, I can't help it. It's a miserable day out. <laughs> Miles says, you know, begging again, first for attention, now for affection. And Miss Giddens is upset at first and then tries to backpedal. And, and it's one way to improv and deflate situations. Let's pretend it's Flora's birthday. Okay. It works. <laughs> it works. School's over, but hey, let's do this. <laughs> it's Flora's birthday somewhere. And it just happens to be here today. <laughs> so the kids say, all right, let's do a costume party. They go off to get dressed up. And this is where we get some more context on Quint. Miss Giddens asks Miss Gross about Quint and says, oh, yeah, he died. And he died out there on those very steps. It was winter. It was the coldest, blackest winter's night. He had a wound on his head as if he'd slipped. Yeah, he'd come home from drinking. As if he'd been drinking, yes. And had a look in his eyes she once saw in a fox that the dogs had hunted down. So the hypothesis was, you know, oh, he had a wound on his head. He was probably drinking, slipped and fell. Worth noting, though, first person to find him was Miles. Right, so we come back to the trauma angle with the kids. A lot of what happens here could very easily be, yes, they're possessed, or Miles found a dead body in the morning, for Christ's sake. <laughs> the, the boy is disturbed. Well, and depending on how far you want to take the twisted children angle, we have that Miles quote-unquote found him, but are the children culpable in their demise? Mm. So we just mentioned, funnily enough, splitting off from Death Wish, which we just mentioned. There is a film, so we're recording this in October, so I don't know if it'll still be up, but there is a movie that's on the Criterion channel this month called The Nightcomers, which is a 1970s movie directed by Michael Winner, who did Death Wish 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> did other things, but that's probably what most folks know him for. The premise of The Nightcomers it is a prequel to Turn of the Screw, where Marlon Brando plays Quint, and it is all about the relationship between Quint, Miss Jessel, and the children. And it's basically... It's between this and his Bertolucci films, I start to think that Brando picked his roles based on whatever his fetish was at that particular point in time, because this movie is all about his bondage obsession with Miss Jessel. As we find out later in The Innocence, we find out that they had this twisted relationship. And The Nightcomers is all about that twisted relationship and the children seeing it. So spoilers for The Nightcomers. So if you're curious about it, skip forward a couple seconds. But the way The Nightcomers ends is there's an offhand comment made by Quint which is that when people are alive, they're too wrapped up in hate. So the only way to truly love someone is to be dead with them. So the kids say, let's expedite that. They establish in the nightcomers that Mrs. Jessel can't swim. So the kids poke a hole in her boat. So when she goes out for a swim, she drowns. And then Quint finds her and is grief stricken, takes a seat and is hit in the back with an arrow. Turns around and it's Miles with a bow and arrow. Oh, shit. Which Quint teaches him to use early in the film. And Miles says, ah! just hang on there, Quint. This will be done shortly. And he pulls back and he, you see him plug Marlon Brando in the skull with an arrow. Oh, so, my God. Something is wrong with Miles. Or no, I'm sorry. We need to talk about Miles. That's we it. need to talk about Miles. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Even, even the bow and arrow. Nice. Boy, did I fucking <laughs> blow that joke. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, so that movie takes the approach of, hey, what if the kids did it? Well, considering they show up in the next scene dressed as the cult of Paimon, I feel like they probably <laughs> did do it. Yeah, before we get to the costume scene real quick, if you're really curious, check out The Nightcomers. I don't think it's a great film. I don't think it's particularly good, but it has some interesting bits in it. And if you're really, really into Turn of the Screw, check it out. Like I said, right now it should be on Criterion. And yeah, now we get, like Jake mentioned, the kids coming down looking like the cult of Paimon with... Miles wearing a crown and Flora wearing a pincushion. Miles then tells everyone in attendance, I wrote a poem. It's creepy as fuck. 
here I go. And, <laughs> and like he does it to the group and then he like finishes out to the window and then he like turns dramatically and looks at them afterward. It's he's like, ah, <laughs> yeah, this kid has his like the creepy version of Blue Steel from fucking Zoolander <laughs> where he just has this cold stare, which he can bust out. And it's so goddamn creepy every time they shoot it. Oh. Magic Jack Clayton's main direction was, you know, them children of the dam just look like one of that all the time. Ugh. Yeah. So we get this poem sequence, which is part poem, part potentially invocation. At least that's how Miss Giddens reads it. <laughs> that's Miss Gross. Do you hear that shit? He's basically admitting <laughs> that he knows about the ghost. So from here, impromptu birthday party over. We get the sound of the children roughhousing. And this happens at the exact moment where Mrs. Gross is alluding to the relationship between Quint and Miss Jessel. Following this is the sequence in the gazebo, what I guess is also referred to as a folly, at least according to the script, which is this stone gazebo that's sitting on the shore of a lake. Mrs. Giddens is out there, and Flora is playing about while Miles is out on a boat. Mrs. Giddens looks up as she's exchanging a conversation with Flora, and now we get what is probably the most iconic sequence of the movie, or at least what I have seen people reference the most, which is... Miss Giddens looking up and we see her react and then we see a shot of a figure in a black dress, somewhat blurred, somewhat obscured, standing out atop the surface of the lake. So it's the shot of what we assume is Miss Jessel standing there. Yet again, this is another shot that I think even today is creepy as fuck. Yeah, it's damn creepy. For me, this was kind of the money shot of the whole film. Uh, It was the one shot I knew going into this because of an article I read uh, last month about perfect horror movie shots. I read it because I had just watched Sleepaway Camp. And they talk about the final shot in that. But this one, there's a visual accompaniment to the thing I was reading, and it shows these perfect shots, and they're all just very still shots of something standing there, not moving, and how disturbing and creepy those can be, like the twins. In- That's the one that got us to watch the unedited footage of a bear, right? Yes, I was in <laughs> fact reading this article at about one thirty in the morning, and one of the shots is from the unedited footage of a bear, and I'm like, well, what the fuck is that? So I put it on, and I watched it, and I didn't sleep a lot that night. It messed me up bad, so I made Nick watch it, and he was like, I'm not going to watch this at night. And I'm like, it's do like it. It's 2 a.m. in the goddamn morning. Why am I going to watch? So I got this thing. So I will watch some of the most fucked up shit. You know, I'll, I'll pop in like a two-hour body horror or torture porn, whatever, you know, whatever. You know, I'll watch some awful shit. But shorts, horror shorts really just kind of creep me out. I don't know why, but they hit harder. They're compact and, and they really like just get to the heart of the matter and stay there. Like, um, I haven't seen the movie Lights Out. But I did see the horror short that inspired it, and that fucked me up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. The movie didn't, but that did. Yeah, I mean, but you know, horror shorts will get me, especially like there's there was um, I think there's like a whole bunch of these like thirty second urban legend ones, just really quick knockouts, and each one of them was just like, (laughs) yeah. Well, unedited footage of a bear was that in spades. It was unexpected. Because I knew in what I knew about it, which was a very little bit at that point, like I'd never heard of it, but, you know, I knew, okay, so it's some sort of horror short that doesn't seem like that. And then you watch it. And by the end of it, it's like, I I was shaken, like it messed (laughs) me up, but it's got one of these kind of iconic shots in it where you see someone standing in the middle of a road from a fairly long distance. And 
it's worth Googling the article. I don't remember where it was, but if you Google horror shots or if you Google final scene in sleepaway camp, I think it's a horror monument shots. Yeah. But this shot in the innocence is definitely in there and, and seeing it in context, it's like, oh yeah, no, that's even worse now. Yeah. We get this creepy ass shot of Miss Jessel. Worth noting something Christopher Frayling points out on the commentary for The Innocence, which is a lot of movies, you see the scare and then you see the reaction shot. But in basically everything in The Innocence, you see reaction shot, the scare, reaction shot, where it's always you see Miss Giddens' reaction first. Mm -hmm. So again, potentially lending credence to certain other interpretations of the film if you wish to pursue them. And what we get in this one, too, is she... <laughs> Miss Giddens essentially asks Flora, did you see that shit? And there's a beat before Flora turns and looks puzzled at Miss Giddens. And again, is it confusion? Is it a spell being lifted? It's all how you want to take it. Miss Giddens takes it as there's some fucked up shit going on here. As she puts it something secretive and whispery and indecent. And Miss Gross thankfully has the sense not to tell crazy ass Miss Giddens, your ass is crazy to her face and is just sort of politely <laughs> telling her, yeah, there might be some stuff going on here. And she gets deeper into the actual nature of the relationship between Quint and Miss Jessel. They had this awful relationship where Quint would strike her and as Miss Gross puts it and says, I've seen him knock her to the floor and she'd look at him as though she wanted the weight of his hand. And then we get another one of the creepy images where hearkening back to the dark rooms discussion earlier, where Flora mentioned she used to look in dark rooms. Miss Gross says that Quint and Jessel used rooms used by daylight as though they were dark woods. Without any care for who noticed or saw. So it was clear that Miss Gross had definitively walked in on them. And while Miss Gross is not sure about the children, she can't definitively say they didn't. And it would actually explain a lot. You know, if the children are seen them the throes of lovemaking, it would explain a lot of what happens with Miles in the course of the film. Yes. About how he approaches women. This is just how men and women interact as far as he's concerned to some degree. And this is where Miss Giddens, hearing all this, thinks that the children are under the spell of these spirits. As we find out, Miss Jessel died after Quint. Quint was discovered dead. Miss Jessel used to wander the house sobbing. And while Miss Gross says initially she died of a broken heart, Miss Giddens takes this to the next leap and says, I think these two kids are possessed, you know, unless they're both deceiving us. It's a big leap. It's a hell of a in leap. In any context. It's like, oh, the kids are creepy. There's a dead couple. Oh, yeah. Possession. Sure. There we go. And her solution is get me the vicar. Cut to them going to church, in which Miss Giddens is intending to talk to the vicar about you know, bringing him in to get some Jesus in on the situation. Again, Miss Giddens coming from a religious household or growing up in one. And this is where she presses Miss Gross on Miss Jessel's death. And how did she die? And where Miss Gross confesses that she died in wickedness. She put an end to herself. She was found in the lake, drowned. And this is where we get Miss Giddens seeing Flora leave flowers on Miss Jessel's grave. Again, making the connection in Miss Giddens' mind that Jessel has potentially possessed Flora. But also, Miss Giddens picks up the flowers and touches them. They look. They are starting to wilt very slightly and sort of curl in at her touch. See, it's funny. Uh, I immediately, um, upon seeing that Jessel had her own gravestone, I'm like, okay. So they decidedly lied to the vicar about how she died. <laughs> because back in those days, you commit suicide, you don't get a normal grave. <laughs> that comes up in the script. They're approaching church and they walk past Miss Jessel's grave 
And Miss Giddens says, wait, why isn't she buried in the churchyard? Yep. The script also shows Miss Giddens talking to the vicar. We don't hear the dialogue, but we see her speaking with the vicar. And then we cut afterwards. And essentially, it's her going, that motherfucker told me no. (laughs) (laughs) Where apparently he he was like, yeah, I'm not coming out there. Screw that shit. We cut to Miss Giddens going about the house. We cut to her going into the schoolroom to fetch something. Again, enters an empty schoolroom, buzzing of insects. And we hear sobbing, turns around, and she sees a sobbing Miss Jessel at her lectern, which she normally teaches. And here we get the part of the script that apparently Truman Capote regretted, which is Miss Giddens approaches the lectern. The spirit of Miss Jessel disappears sometime in between shots. But Miss Giddens looks down at the lectern, and there is a teardrop. Did he he regret the teardrop because it's too concrete? Yes. Yeah, (laughs) he... Presumably, say, I don't know why I wrote that fucking teardrop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he, he regretted doing something that was tangible. But I, yes. to me, it's, I, I understand the logic behind that, but it's, again, with everything being through Miss Giddens' prism. It's still suspect. Yeah, it's, it doesn't break anything to me. It could be easily be any number. You could rationalize it in, in a number of ways. It, first off, it's not tangible. It just is to her. Yep. If someone else were to walk in, they may not see it. Or it could be a damn leak from the roof. Or even, better yet, might even be her own tear. She doesn't know she dropped it. <laughs> I was looking for that. Oh, here's where I left it. <laughs> Leaving these things everywhere. <laughs> this is where Miss Gross comes in and says, Oh, hey, you're right. Because at this point, Miss Giddens is entertaining the idea of fetching the uncle for some assistance. And Miss Giddens says, I'm not going. Everything has changed. Yeah, because up to this point, this this is the moment that she decides it's possession. Before, it was just the kids know. They're aware. They are speaking to the spirits. They're in cahoots. They're on board with whatever plan they have. They're just associated with the ghosts. Whereas now, it's the, I got it. Because through the spirit she was seeing, she could feel the hunger of that spirit for Quint. And so she has come to the conclusion that to fulfill this need, to fulfill this hunger, They need to take on physical form, and to do so, they're going to possess the children. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, she knew who stole the strawberries. (laughs) (laughs) And Miss Gross takes this batshit rambling pretty well. As best she can. As best she can. Yeah, Miss Gross rolls with a lot of punches in this movie. (laughs) To be fair, it, it, it has been very clear from the beginning to now that Miss Giddens has been given full reign of the estate. If Miss Giddens said, Bye-bye, Miss Gross. See you later. Don't <laughs> let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. It's a done deal. <laughs> so Miss Gross loves her job, loves the children, and she's like, I got this crazy-ass governess running the show now, and I just need to roll with the punches because I have no choice in the matter. Yep. As we know from the uncle, she is in charge. I don't get paid enough for this to be my concern. Yeah. <laughs> Miss Gross does have one decision I quite like, which we'll get to in a second. Before then, we have Miss Giddens at night consulting the Bible on what to do. Sets the Bible down. Again, a single flower petal crumbling and falling on it. Oh, God, I love this so much. And (laughs) now we get her walking about the house at night. Now, having heard from Miss Gross about what occurred in dark rooms, we get Miss Giddens walking about the house, hearing things that would sound like what Miss Gross was implying was going on in those dark rooms. It's a whole lot of just these audio cues that are fantastic from the giggles to these like little lost fragments of words like kiss me or, you know, you're hurting me. 
we get a woman's voice moaning, love me, love me. And one of my favorite shots as she approaches a window and the drawstring of the window, which has a little wooden ball at the bottom of it, is rhythmically smacking that glass while a woman's <laughs> voice says, love me. And it's you just... could not have said that better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tap that glass. <laughs> and yeah, and this is where we get our big jump scare of the movie. Yes. Which I wasn't expecting. No. Because I don't expect jump scares from like pre-Halloween movies. I don't know why. Yeah, Miss Giddens turns about too quick, and we get a crash zoom on a statue built into the wall, and the sound of somebody screaming. Whether or not it's Miss Giddens or it's a hallucination, somebody screams. There's so many statues in this movie. There are just endless, countless statues. If you're not outside, surrounded by statues, they're outside the windows just waiting for you. It's just continuous. Don't blink. <laughs> yeah. And worth noting, so we're about to come up on the finale of the film, but one of the the location for the finale is this circle of statues set out in the garden, which we've seen earlier in the film. We're about to see it again. But the centerpiece statue within the center of that is a man and a woman intertwined. Again, talking about what the central image of this is, it's very much literalized in that sequence. And yeah, I love the lack of subtlety in the tap that glass bit. Um, (laughs) So after this, Miss Giddens goes into Flora's room. Flora conveniently has her own little Annabelle doll. Flora calls attention to the fact that Miles has gone for a walk and he's gone for a walk in this statue area. We're talking about this ring of about eight statues with a centerpiece of a man and a woman in each other's arms. Miles comes back inside, tells Miss Giddens that the reason for his walk was it was a shocking thing to do, wasn't it? And I have in my notes, not as shocking as what's about to happen, because (laughs) following this. Well, the first thing that happens after this is we find out that Miles is sleeping with a dead pigeon under his pillow. Just keeping it warm. Just didn't want to leave it alone out there. And he's planning on burying it tomorrow. But also, it's worth noting, the whole reason he's outside is he's set it up. He's even made sure Flora was there to point Miss Giddens out the window to see him. Is because he wanted to do a bad thing. I wanted you to think me bad for a change. Yep. Yeah. He was worried he was becoming a bore. (laughs) That he was boring her. And he clearly was doing this because as he's always doing through the film, he's trying to charm her. And I felt this was a very important statement on his part for two reasons. One, I think it is directly from his teachings and time with Quint. I could easily see Quint saying something along the lines of every so often you need to be bad so you're not just boring these ladies. You know, I could easily see him being a bad influence on Miles in that effect and it sticking with him. But it also, I think, translates to why Miles got kicked out of school in the first place. I think Miles is a great kid and he's a sweet kid, but he's like, you know what? I have to be bad in this moment. I have to do this thing. That's what I've been told you do. So you're not a bore. And it ended up getting kicked out of school. There's very quintessential explanation here for the whole thing. Having seen the Nightcomers, now I can only think of Marlon Brando relaying the details you just talked about. First thing women love, they love it when you walk to a garden at night. Second thing they love, keep a reptile in your pocket at all times. That goes for you too, Flora. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we get the dead pigeon, which Miss Giddens holds aloft. And then we get a sequence where Miles says, kiss me, Miss Giddens. Or let me give you a kiss. I forget the exact lead in because it's easy to forget the lead in line because of what happens next. Yep. Because we get this extreme close up on a not brief kiss between a child actor and Deborah Carr. 
this is a bit where again i was legit shocked watching this yep in class did not see that coming in in my freshman year of college whoa just wham right in the lips 20th century fox was likewise shocked because we get a repeat of this later in the film and they're like ah, can we release this because jesus my only note here was what the hell again very indicative of him being exposed to and seen more than he should have at his age with quint and jessel but yeah it is incredibly awkward and off-putting and as soon as he's done you see her she is like shaken to the damn core like oh my god what i really liked about this scene was two seconds before he did it he's actually semi-charming her like for half a second you can almost see in her eyes where she's like uh, maybe i'm overreacting maybe you know he's a good kid he's good and then he does this and it's the point of no return at this point he's broken her and she's like clearly this is not a normal child everything i thought is is real and this is a serious problem and it needs to be addressed and her response to this is i need to be alone with this child which again you have the i need to basically cleanse this child and but then there are also potentially some more unnerving undercurrents running here. And again, it bravo to Deborah Carr for being able to play it where everything is tap dancing on that line of what exactly is it she's feeling in this particular scene. It's also worth noting, like I mentioned, the shot of Quint in the window is my favorite shot of the film. The one that haunts me is after he kisses her and flops down in bed, there's just a shot of him giving her this blank sanguine smile. And that's the shot that always pops in my head is that creepy stare. Again, it's just a static image mm -hmm. of a kid smiling at somebody off camera. And it is chilling. Yep. yep. And Miss Giddens lets it drop, goes out the next day. The kids are playing. Miles is playing a Willow Whaley on the piano, which I had in my notes. I was like, man, they're oh, Willow Whaley is like Dawkins dream warriors for these kids. It just never gets old. <laughs> <laughs> It's the willy willy. <laughs> now I lie alone, weeping beside the tree. Willow willy. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to us doing that on Elm Street 3 at some point so we can talk about seeing Dokken perform that acoustic. Oh, uh, it was so good. We paid good money to watch Dokken yell at a bartender. <laughs> 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 so Flora is once again gone outside has gone out to play in the folly in the middle of the rain. Miss Giddens chases her out there. Miss Giddens again sees the apparition potentially of Miss Jessel, grabs a hold of Flora and says, you know, you see her, don't you? Because Miss in Miss Giddens' mind, if she can get the children to just acknowledge once that they see or are possessed by Quint and Jessel, that will cure them. She has in her head that just if she can get them to acknowledge the reality of their situation, that will essentially free them. Which is some faculty-ass logic right there. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> well, before this, she's been reading the Bible. So there is some argument that she's been researching how to handle this, theoretically. Yeah, she's insistent that you can see her, can't you, Flora? And Flora... What? Hold up, hold up. <laughs> what chapter of the Bible is that in, Nick? <laughs> Which is the one that says, say thy name and ghosts be gone? <laughs> Jake, I can't do all your own research, all right? <laughs> <laughs> kind of fucked up Bible you got at your house. <laughs> Not 
the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Forbidden Testament over there. No, we're this is definitely an Old Testament type relationship going on here. I think. <laughs> yes, this is a movie that both Old Testament and deeply, deeply in need of some Jesus. <laughs> Should have had a scene where Miss Gross, like when Miss Giddens puts down the Bible with a bookmark in it, Miss Gross sees it, picks it up, and says. Is she reading the Apocrypha? Oh, she does have problems. <laughs> <laughs> and now we get uh, basically my favorite sequence with Miss Gross speaking, which I alluded to earlier, which Miss Giddens has, while trying to coax Flora into confessing, Flora flies into an absolute frenzy and just spends hours and hours wailing into the night. We find out from Miss Gross that Flora apparently swears like a sailor. And Miss Giddens says, oh, that's more evidence to what's going on. You know, how these kids have been affected by Jessel and Quint. Yeah, I love that they'll have that kiss on camera, but the kid won't swear on camera. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where Miss Giddens says, I need you to take everyone out of the house except for Miles. It's going to just be Miles and me staying at this place. And Mrs. Gross, very politely, you know, dances around. You know, Are you sure you want to do this? But the crux of what she says is, don't need to tell me twice because she never once tries to sneak Miles out, smuggle him out. We cut to after Miss Gross gives up. Now, she does try and argue a bit and says, what am I supposed to tell you know the uncle when I see him? And Miss Giddens says, tell him the truth. And Miss Gross is like, OK, crazy lady. And you got it. We cut to a shot of Mrs. Gross with Flora in the carriage. And Miss Flora will not look at Miss Giddens as the carriage rolls around. Miss Gross going to roll up on the uncle just screaming next time check fucking references <laughs> <laughs> you know in this moment gross and, and flora drive off and i fully expected to be a scene of them like just politely going down the road and then the damn seat just like blowing open and going oh thank god yeah. <laughs> just miles going hit it i really wanted flora to turn to mrs gross and say what about my brother mrs gross my dear sweet flora with all due respect fuck your brother and then just turns to the valet floor it and they just whip the hell out of his horses and, and hightail it out of there at one point before she leaves it's worth noting mrs gross is concerned and miss giddens reply to her is wait until you see miles again before you judge me and i'm just like ha ha can do <laughs> And now we get Miss Giddens walking about the house in a black dress, much like Miss Jessel. She started the movie in white. We have ended in black. Confronts Miles where, you know, he comes into the tea room and says, oh, we're going to have a meal together like an adult. It's worth noting real quick. This dude's been gone all day. Mm -hmm. Like she's been waiting and waiting. It goes into the afternoon. It's nighttime. At best, you could say maybe it's like tea time before dinner. But he has been actively avoiding her all day. Kind of like... Uh, I don't want to deal with this. Do I have to deal with this? I guess it's time to deal with this. I have to eat at some point. You know, this this is the, mi the mindset I'm thinking of of him going, oh, crap. I got to actually go talk to this woman now. <laughs> and yeah, this scene is fabulous of them speaking over tea, which is where he tells her, you know, no, don't worry. There's a man in the house. I'll protect you. Reaches out his hand to her. And as she goes to take it, he slaps the one of the gelatinous centerpieces of their meal. And then he flees into the adjoining green room. And now we get, we spoke about condensation on the, the glass earlier when we saw Quint standing outside when he scared Miss Giddens. Now we get a scene where all of the windows in this area are covered in condensation. Yep. And as the scenes progress, sweat accumulates on Miles and Miss Giddens' forehead. 
It was nicely done. And here's how it's described in the script. It says, There is, throughout this scene, the sensation of heat. The windows are misted over, and as the scene progresses, beads of perspiration bathe the faces of Miles and Miss Giddens. At times, their voices echo against the glass, rise and fall, become blurred, like fish swimming in an aquarium. To the point that when we first see Miles in the scene, he's stroking Rupert, and there's water reflecting on his face. What was left out is presumably the footnote somewhere. In case you can't read the subtext, I'm talking about fucking. (laughs) (laughs) And this scene is just another fabulous scene. I keep saying that, but it's it's Miss Giddens who's trying to coax Miles into confessing that he's possessed by Quint, but she's doing that initially by trying to get him to confess what actually happened at school. And we get one of my favorite exchanges where she says, I'm being honest with you. And he has the line, ah, now who isn't telling the truth? If you really thought that, we wouldn't be having these conversations. He's pretty quick. And then has the bit where he starts to confess about how unnerved the other children were around him at school. And he just has the line, they screamed. And she keeps pressing. He turns around and confronts and and just snaps on Miss Giddens. And as he does so, Quint once again appears at the window, staring down at Miles as Miles lays into Miss Giddens and calls her a damn hussy and a damn dirty-minded hag. In the script, it was damn dirty-minded bitch. Hmm. Didn't get away with that one, but they they tried. <laughs> and at this point, we get tortoise frisbee as poor Rupert. <laughs> I was thinking shot put. <laughs> I was about to say, Miles does demonstrate that the one thing he took from him at school was he was really good at discus. <laughs> he and tosses Rupert as a distraction through some glass. Wabam! As I said earlier, my only note on this was, yo, who throws a turtle? (laughs) (laughs) And Miles goes running into the gardens, falls on his face. And at this point, Miss Giddens gets Kirk eyelighting as she's shaking Miles and says, you must tell me his name, trying to get him to just say Quint, say Quint's name. And they're in the center of these statues and the camera whirls around the statues and they spin around. I really wanted them real quickly to just be the Pazuzu statue from the Exorcist. Because one of them looks like it has its (laughs) hand up at the side. And sure enough, in the midst of these shots, One of the statues, it turns out, becomes Quint as he stands astride. And then finally, Miles concedes, Quint, Peter Quint, where is he? Because Miss Giddens insists she can see him. And Quint raises his hand, again, sort of like the Pazuzu position. And we find out that Quint studied under Pai Mei from Kill Bill Part 2 because somebody (laughs) taught him the five-point palm exploding heart technique. Because as he raises his hand, the sound cuts. And then we get, I'll recite it as it's noted in the script, which is Miles' breath seems to stop, his arms fall, a strange puzzled look comes over his face, the look of a child faced with something beyond his understanding. He begins to fall quite slowly, only a short distance from Miss Giddens. Let's perfectly describe his the look on Miles' face of just caught on that precipice of the beyond as he just simply, the life fades out of him. What the script doesn't include is he does a really great Ric Flair front face flop into the ground. <laughs> so apparently they taught him to bump really well when he went to that school as well. But the Quint apparition is gone. Giddens cradles him and says, oh, you're cured now. And we just get birdsong and a dead child. Yep. Miss Giddens is, recoils in horror and then leans down and we get another kiss. And again, it's one of those, whoa. And after kissing him, she leans back out of frame. The bird song continues, and we get hands coming from below frame into frame, and we realize that the opening shot is the ending shot, and we've come yep. full circle. It is worth noting real quick that while 
Miles is saying Peter's name and looking for him, he never actually looks at the apparition that she sees. No. Like, not once. So, again, lending to the credence of, is this in her head or not? Even up to the end, it's not clear. No, she spins him in the vague direction that he should be looking, but he's not looking that way. Nope. And... The original last shot was slightly different. Originally, it's here's how it was noted. She stands still holding the child for a long minute. Then slowly, she kisses his white face. She looks up. Cut to another angle. From the roof of the house, the pigeons fly in a great white cloud. She moves towards the dark doorway as we fade out. So there was a slightly different bit there at the end where it was the shot of these pigeons and not the sequence at the beginning. The reason for that is the movie originally had an entirely different opening which took place at Miles' funeral. Oh, shit. The original opening of the film. <laughs> now, Chris Frayling talks about this a bit on the commentary. The copy of the script I have is missing the first page, so I'm missing part of it. But it originally opens at Miles' funeral. Miss Giddens is there, and no one wants to speak with her, <laughs> clearly, <laughs> including the uncle. And she goes back to the mansion, and she packs her bags, is picking up various items, and one of the things she pulls out of a drawer is the drawing of a horse that Miles did earlier in the film. And she looks at it for a moment, she puts it aside, and the script notes she finds a clean bit of paper and starts to write. Miss Giddens' voiceover. Dear sir, if you blame me, as you must, for the terrible happenings here at Bly, it can be no more than I blame myself. And yet, if you knew it at all, how else could I have acted? I shall ask that of myself for the rest of my life. If you remember... When I first came to see you in answer to your advertisement, you said to me, and then it fades into her interview in his office. So that was the original opening. I'm very glad they changed that. Yep. Yes. Because the opening they went with is so much more effective. But it just, it's more, instead of giving away the plot and you just waiting to see how it turns out, it just sets the mood and the atmosphere. You just kind of ride that through, not knowing what you're getting into. It's so much better. Yeah, I adore the opening to this. That's the main script changes the opening. Like I said, there's a bit more dialogue between her and the uncle initially where he's more overtly flirtatious, where he's reading their letter where she says, more than anything, I love children. The script note, he reads that, more than anything, I love children. Direction, gazing at her, coolly flirtatious. More than anything? <laughs> Miss Kiddens, embarrassed. Yes. Uncle, staring at her for a moment. How remarkable. <laughs> so they definitely put that on a little thicker. The only other thing really worth noting from the script, aside from little bits and pieces, is the uncle comes back halfway through the script. He shows up at the mansion because he's with a French woman who he wants to show her the manor. And he's brought her out there. And Miss Kiddens comes out with the kids. And she's like, oh, I'm so glad you visited. And he's like, oh, my ass isn't staying. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to prove to Frenchie here that I'm rich. <laughs> yep. And as he says, he's speaking to her in French and introduces her to the house. And he actually says specifically to Miss Giddens, he says, oh, you know, this is just a pop in, pop out, as he puts it. And Miss Giddens is trying to alert him to her suspicions as far as what's going on. And the uncle initially says, I thought I'd pay you not to bother me with this shit. And she keeps pressing the issue. And he says, all right, fine, tell me. And she says, well, I want to tell you in private. And he says, we are in private. This lady doesn't speak English. And he gestures to the woman next to him. <laughs> he said, don't care about her. She only speaks French. Not realizing that the children are there. And that's what Miss Giddens is concerned about. So Miss Giddens is like, oh, it's nothing. And, and he says, all right, well, then I'm peacing out. As they go to leave, the carriage leaves. and Flora 
takes Miss Giddens' hand, and Flora says, Oh dear, I think it's going to rain. The pretty lady will get wet. Miles, taking Miss Giddens' other hand and smiling at her. We rather hope she does, don't we, Miss Giddens? So, in reference to the French lady, and again, the reference to the rain and getting wet, very particular, being Miss Jessel's ass drowned. Yep. <laughs> so, those are the major script notes, and that's The Innocents. It's an uncomfortable film. Oh, yeah. Yep. And it's a masterpiece in cinematography and atmosphere and tone. And it's really well done. It deserves to be considered a classic. And I see why it's so well loved. So what do you think? Is it ghosts or is it uh, she's crazy? She's nuts. <laughs> she's totally nuts. <laughs> I went in thinking she's nuts and I it was not like nothing dissuaded me from that opinion. By the end, I'm like, wow, she drove this kid to a heart attack. <laughs> That's hardcore. <laughs> so what was the bit that led you into that perception going into it? Um, I think it had to do a little bit. I've done just a tiny bit of studies with psychology and like brain and behavior. And they did a really good job of touching on like auditory and visual cues, that kind of hallucinations. Like when she sees the guy in the tower, it's not just the silence either. It's like there's the complete silence and there's like a flare up everything's just a little bit brighter mm -hmm. you know for that moment it, it's every time there's a hallucination there is a precedent before it of a stress reaction there's always a trigger there's this constant buildup of these stresses that are building on her that easily explain why these things keep happening and i, I thought it was incredibly well done to give the illusion that could go either way, but to a point where I just saw nothing that could be considered supernatural. I could see why you would take it that way, but I could easily see all of this being psychosis born. Yeah, I, like I mentioned earlier, this is a situation in which I think the question is interesting. I don't really care about the answer. The, the important thing is the question. The answer is negligible. And I feel, I feel you're absolutely right. And it took away from the experience for me a little bit because I had gone in so hardcore. I, I wish I had, I had been questioning it more throughout. Yeah. It was fun to look for the moments where the questions were supposed to be. And I could see them and I could acknowledge them. And I think I would have been more elated by the film. Could I have held that wonder throughout instead of just like, wow, she nuts. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll say this, and, and I don't want to tell anyone, you know, obviously that their interpretation, you know, is, is that should go one way or the other. Like I said, I think the answer for this is generally negligible. But for me, among the many things I love about this film is it's so immaculately constructed and there's mm -hmm. so many layers to the performances. One of those layers being I find the read on it that this is all Miss Giddens psychosis from her upbringing and her damage that she essentially brings. And again, we talked about this movie being demonstrated in a series of warped, distorted, cracked prisms and everything is viewed through this twisted lens. And if your read on the movie is that we're seeing a sequence of events that are viewed through Miss Giddens' twisted, distorted, cracked lens yep. of her belief system. If you view it that way, it's so much fun watching Deborah Carr's performance. Yep, she's brilliant. It's her best performance, I think, and she's fun regardless of what your read is of it. But if you're going at it from that angle and just watching the push-pull of emotions on her face, and if you really embrace how dark the subtext of the movie is getting, which given Truman Capote did the screenplay is entirely fair, then it's just really, really fun seeing Deborah Carr potentially wrestling with emotions and thoughts 
you would not think to be broached so brazenly in a film in 1961. Or at least that was what I thought going into it when I saw this as a naive freshman and said, oh shit, black and white films can be fucked up. (laughs) Well, it also, to support that theory that it was intentionally pushing those darker themes, Jack Clayton was actually worried about the children, actors, being exposed to darker themes of the story. So they never actually saw the screenplay in its entirety. Uh, they were given their pages the day before they were to be filmed. Hmm. So they only ever got the film in chunks for each individual scene. Which way does the book go? There goes. Yeah, it's from what I recall, the subtext is there, but it's more overtly, you know, it, there's more potential for it to be just overtly supernatural. Like I mentioned, it's been a long, long time. We'll probably find out when Bly Manor hits. Yay! We'll definitely see which angle they take it. Mike Flanagan. He's our favorite human. <laughs> At this rate, I'm going to end up like having when we do the Bly Manor thing, I'm just going to have to do it as Paul Lind, which is going <laughs> to hell on my voice. But. I guess my thinking on it is normally I really hate it when movies set you up to think something is supernatural and then it isn't. It always makes me mad. And at this one, it didn't because like you said, Eric, it doesn't matter. Yes. The point isn't whether they're real or not. The point is the movie itself, the performances, and trying to not think too deeply about what's actually happening in front of you. And just experience it. Yeah. I think the movie is very much in the camp of these are not ghosts. This is all psychosis. I think that's very much what the movie is trying to tell you. So I I would roll with that, but I don't think it matters. It doesn't. Yeah, if you're a ghost person and you just want to go into it thinking it's a ghost movie, then you can do that read. It'll work. And you'll and, yeah. and it works fine. <laughs> yeah. My feeling is just basically every time a director comes in and says, I want this to be ambiguous, that director believes it is not supernatural. One hundred percent. Again, that's probably somewhat more fair in this situation considering it was done by Truman Capote, which is I'm talking about fucking <laughs> which is a lot of this movie. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't think that's an unfair assumption <laughs> in this film. But, yeah, the, the important thing is just the, the level of craft on display here, just in every level. Yeah. It is so gorgeous to look at. It is so well performed. The sound is so meticulously put together. There's so much talent. You can just see it on every level. Yeah. I, I would actually say, kind of similar to the experience I had, if you have a hang up for whatever reason about quote unquote classic films or black and white films for some reason, and it's, you know, it's like, oh, I haven't looked into horror films from that area because I don't think they can scare me. This is what I would say is pretty much the first one you should check out. I mean, there's obviously there's Carnival of Souls. You know, there's a bunch of other stuff that you could say. But I would say The Innocent, it might not scare you, but I believe this film still has the capacity to shock you. Even by today's standards, there are things in this movie which is like, uh, you couldn't do that in a movie today, probably. No, I'll say this. I recently watched Kill List which makes a lot of lists for, you know, disturbing and rough movies. And I would put this on par with that in its capacity to work you over. Interesting. I'm not I'm not comparing the two films. They're very different. I'm just saying that this is just as shocking as Kill List was to me. Mm. Different reasons, but... No, I'm just glad you both enjoyed it. I was waiting to watch this one with you guys for a while, so I'm glad we finally had the opportunity. Yeah, I, you know, and it's nice for us to get kind of fancied up once in a while since we've been down in the, <laughs> the gutter for a little bit with uh, what we've been doing. 
I'm talking about Hen and Lauder. <laughs> and Born, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to see where Phantasm falls in your feelings of gutter versus classics. <laughs> I gotta finish hashing out like Hen and Lauder's draft of like the innocence when it was like, okay, Deborah Carr gets topless. She sees Miss Jessup standing on the lake, and you can distantly hear ever so soft on the soundtrack. One a day. <laughs> going out looking for some action got any money <laughs> Miles is shouting at all the pigeons he's keeping you hear me chartreuse sugar bikes monkey <laughs> I'm willing to go out on a limb and say this is the only podcast that is viewing the innocence through their Henenlotter lens. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fucking... I really wish I had better art talent so I could do like the Frank Henenlotter House of Whipcord like exploitation box art for the innocence. This is, this is a fucking cover. Uh, oh my god. No, thank you guys for watching this. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. Uh, and this yeah, this a was a good one. one. This was It was fun to kind of put a masterwork of precision cinema versus a masterwork of exploitation cinema and try and look at them, not through the same lens, but at kind of the same time. And it's interesting. And it, for me, it's a nice way of really exploring how it is. We watch movies and we think about movies and we see cinema and we explore things and what we like and what we don't like, but just how we view things and how you can't necessarily put, everything into the same box and rate things the same way and look at them the same way. If that makes any sense. So what you're saying is the innocence is good. It's no bad biology, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying that they're different kinds of masterworks, not bad biology basket case. Maybe (laughs) like if these, these two movies are in museums and I think you, it's worth thinking about why both are. Yeah, I think that's a good note to end on. This is Eric signing off. Thank you for listening. This is uh, Nick Leamy uh, claiming to be the uncle of the year. (laughs) (laughs) And this is Jake still wondering who throws a turtle. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Dick joke.